And we're going to pick things up where we left off last week. So we have worked our way through verse 13. So we will, we will begin Matthew 9, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Jesus, continuing what is likely his ministry in this, the town of Capernaum, is approached by an interesting group of people. They're presented to us, defined by Matthew, as the disciples of John this being John the Baptizer, whom we were first introduced towards the beginning of the book. John the Baptist had a very unique ministry in the sense that he came as the forerunner of the Messiah. John came after a period of roughly 400 years of silence between the close of what we call the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament. John arrived to prepare the hearts of the people for the Savior. His message was very specific. It was a message of repentance, the repentance of sin, the acknowledgement of one's need for salvation, of a Savior, as the outward manifestation of an internal desire to repent of sin, John's ministry focused on water baptism. He was an interesting cat. John the Baptist wore camel skin, ate locusts. It was kind of a, a throwback, really, a prophet in much the same vein as Elijah and Elisha, coming out of the wilderness, setting up shop in practically the middle of nowhere, on the roadside, telling people to repent, for the Messiah was coming. And then when people responded, he would take them down into the Jordan River, and he would baptize them. John developed, in the course of time, quite a following. In fact, he developed what we would call disciples, men that had made the decision to, to follow after John, to be a part of his ministry, to come alongside in support of his ministry. In fact, there were several of Jesus' disciples that were originally John's disciples, men that, in fact, are standing there with John one day when John sees Jesus, points him out, and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he tells his disciples to go follow after him. Famously, John said that he had to decrease so that Christ could increase. The disciples of John, even during the ministry of Jesus, John still had a bit of a following. We're a, a bit unsure in regards to the timing uh, of this particular event, but it's likely uh, that John has been arrested by Herod at this juncture. Uh, he would be arrested, uh, at, he would later be beheaded, uh, John kind of had a, a very tragic end to his story. Still had disciples. Uh, they were still out and about, but they were kind of without a leader at this juncture. So they come to Jesus, and, and they're observing Jesus. They're witnessing Jesus' ministry. They're listening to Jesus teach. They already have John's testimony of Jesus, but they have a question. And so they come to Jesus with a, with a, a theo theological question rooted in some practicality. And the question deals with fasting. Now, fasting is an interesting topic in and of itself. Uh, in a very traditional sense, uh, fasting was a defined abstinence from food for a particular period of time for various reasons. Uh, in today's modern understanding, we, we can do fast from all kinds of things. 
sometimes you, t- you may, might take a fast from the television. You might take a fast from your telephone. Uh, a, a fast is just a, a setting aside something for a particular period of time for a set reason. And again, all of those things will vary. In its original context here, it's, it's all dealing with food, the abstinence from food. So the disciples of John, they come, and, and their question centers on, a, on an interesting contrast between themselves, the disciples of John, the Pharisees, this religious class there in Israel, and Jesus' disciples. Look back at verse 14. They say, why do we and the disciples fast often? Part one. Part two, but your disciples do not fast. So the question is very simple. We fast. The Pharisees fast. Your disciples don't fast. Now there's two questions. They ask, why do we fast? Why do your disciples not fast? Now to the first half of the question, Jesus doesn't answer it at all. If you guys don't understand why you're fasting, why am I going to explain it to you? You know, why do we fast? I don't know. You tell me. Now, in its context, we understand why the Pharisees fasted. The Pharisees, again, kind of the religious right of the day, the fundamentalists. They believed in fasting twice a week for a very particular reason. They abstained from food in order to demonstrate, to earn God's favor. It was an an active um, work designed to earn a favor. It was to demonstrate piety. It was to show righteousness. They fasted to earn the favor of God. It was a work, a religious work. And they were very devout in regards to it. Now, as it pertains to the disciples of John... And their motivation for fasting, we're left with a little bit of a mystery. Mainly because we have no reference whatsoever at any point in the Gospels of John the Baptist telling his disciples to fast. Never once. Now, we're given quite a bit of information about John the Baptist. And we're told very specifically what his ministry centered upon. What his message uh, focused upon. And that was the act of repentance. It was the turning aside um, of one's sin in preparation to receive Christ the Messiah. We have no mention of John ever talking about fasting, preaching about, about fasting. And yet it's, it's likely that at some point, for some reason, we, we're not told, the disciples of John had connected this activity, fasting, the abstaining from food, as an outward indicator or uh, sign of their internal repentance. Again, it's odd because John had already kind of established um, a rite for that, and that was baptism. For John and his ministry, there was an outward activity demonstrating this, this something that was happening in the heart of the person. It was water baptism. At some point, the disciples of John probably picking up on the cues from the Pharisees, uh, the religious class, begin to equate the abstaining from food as being the outward demonstration of their attitude of repentance. Again, most notably, John the Baptist never, according to our accounting, uh, commanded his disciples to fast, uh, spoke on fasting. Um, It's completely absent Now, what's important for us is the two sides of the fasting coin as being demonstrated by the Pharisees and the religious class. Again, with the religious class, they abstained from eating. They fasted. Why? To earn the favor of God. On the flip side to it, the disciples of John fasted as an indicator, so they abstained, as the indication of repentance. Both outward works. Jesus, interesting his response, because they come, they're like, we're doing this. 
different reasons, but your disciples aren't. And the indication being, you're not instructing them to. You're not talking to them about this. This is absent from your ministry. Why? Why is it? And then Jesus, he does this very interesting thing as he kind of presents an illustration of the reason that fasting was an important aspect of his ministry. He, he first just presents this illustration of a, of, a, of a bride, bridegroom. He says, look at it again. He says, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn when the bridegroom is with them? He's basically saying, the Messiah is here. I'm here. This is cause for celebration, not mourning. Fasting in the context of my arrival and my ministry, it's not relevant. And, and then he kind of carries forth uh, an illustration with a bit of a different direction, talking about a cloth, an unshrunken piece of garment, sewing it into um, an old piece of garment. Again, most of you are probably not sewers. And yet you can understand the idea that if you have an aged pair of, of denim, and you sew into that denim a new patch, and you wash it, dry it, it'll tear, it'll rip, it'll shrink, and it'll destroy the jeans. T to hammer home his point, Jesus continues by presenting the, the additional illustration of, of wine and a wineskin. A little foreign to us, because most of you don't get your wine in skins. Most of them, it's a 750 milliliter bottle or a black box. It's, it's not, it's not wineskin, you know. And yet in that culture, with skin, you know, wine, it expands. You know, with the fermentation process, with oxygen. Well, with an old skin, an old wine that's already expanded, no, no problem. But you'd never put new wine into an old skin because when the fermentation process continues and begins to bloat, the skin ha no longer has the elasticity that it needs. Thus, it'll break, the wine skin's ruined, the wine's lost. So interesting illustrations given by Jesus within the context of this, of this idea of fasting. And to me, there's several ways that you can read into this, but I see Jesus making a much larger point illustrated by what fasting had come to represent within the discipleship of John, as well as the Pharisees, as this religious work. Jesus is speaking to something much broader than just the act of fasting. He's speaking of religion. He's speaking of religious work. So, I understand why you guys fast. Some of you are earn, trying to earn God's favor. Some of you, this is the response to God's favor in some regard. My disciples, this isn't relevant because you don't have to earn God's favor. Like, I'm not coming to do what, what the disciples of John, what John was doing, and I'm not here to do what the Pharisees are doing. I'm here to do something completely different, completely new, and therefore fasting is not very relevant. Interesting. Fasting. You know, of, of all the things that the Apostle Paul talked about, and he talked about a lot of things. You know, fasting is never mentioned. I, I, what I'm going to say might come across a, a little controversial because we have within our, our Christian context, you know, kind of a, a, an affinity towards fasting. You know, that fasting is a good thing. That fasting is something we should be doing, that you should fast. We have 40-day fast. We have 10-day fast. We have all kinds of different fast for a day, fast for a week, fasting. What's interesting is that there's no mandate in Scripture to fast. In regards to the law, by the way, even though the Pharisees had developed their own ideas, there was only one instance, only one day in the entire calendar year in which the law mandated a fast. And it was on the Day of Atonement. It's the only day. Nowhere in the law is it, is it, is it, is it a commandment. Is it listed out as, as a particular religious practice? No, just one day on the Day of Atonement, the holiest day of the year, the Jews were commanded to fast for that day, amongst other things. Jesus never commanded his disciples to fast. We don't find fasting uh, mentioned in the book of Acts as a rite within the early church, as a practice. Paul doesn't write about it in his epistles. We have no mandates. 
we have instructions about what to do with our money. We have instructions about baptism. We have instructions about communion. I mean, the scriptures do go on the record about various things that are to be associated with Christian life. Fasting is not one of them. Now, I'm not saying, and don't, don't take me wrong, that there isn't a place for fasting. In fact, the truth is that there's a lot of health benefits to fasting. Fasting can be very healthy. Um, to take a break from eating certain types of food, from drinking. A fast can have all kinds of, of, of medical benefit. It can also have some psychological benefit. You know, something is just out of place in your life. And you just kind of need to reel things back in. If you find spending your time doing something, uh, it's just becoming overwhelming. It's just too much. And so, you know, I need to set this aside for a little while and kind of rebalance some things just from a very practical standpoint. No problem. And yet, what's interesting to me is when you begin to play out why Christians fast for spiritual reasons. Let me play that out a little. And I think you'll understand my point. So, brother, why are you fasting? Well, I just want to get closer to God. Okay, well, wait a second. You want to get closer to God, so you're fasting. Has God told you that it's through the act of fasting that you grow closer to him? Well, um, no, it never really actually. So you're doing something that God didn't ask you to do to get closer to him. Try that with your marriage. See how that works. Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, I need to fast because I get, I get, I, I feel pure. Well, wait a second. What, what is the essence of your purity? Something that you do or what he's done? The sacrifice you're making or the sacrifice he made? Like, what's the essence of your purity or, or your righteousness? Well, it's Jesus' work on the cross. It's not your work. So fasting is not going to bring you any closer because if a work could bring you closer, then Jesus died in vain. So why are you fasting? Well, it's this, this thing is a, it's a sin in my life. So, you, okay, so you're going to address sin in your life through a work of the flesh. Your discipline, your sacrifice. That sounds really gospel, doesn't it? No. You see, this is kind of what Jesus is getting at when he's, when he's asked about fasting. He's like, you, you guys don't understand that, that what I've come to do, the establishment of, 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 of true spiritual things, it, it trumps all that you, that you assume. It's not religion. You see, you don't have to fast twice a week to earn my favor. You already have it. You don't have to earn something you already have. And not only that, but as the sign of, of, of repentance, the abstaining of things. You know, it's interesting that when we talk about, like, distortions to the gospel, and again, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but things deserve to be repeated if they're important. Like the glorious news of the gospel, it's a very simple message. It's grace and grace alone. It's grace, period. It's all that he's done because you could do nothing. And it's about accepting it. And then allowing yourself to abide in that and to enjoy that and allow it to naturally change you. It's not work, it's not effort, it's not energy. Jesus, in, in describing your role, he says simply, abide in me as, as, as a grape abides in the vine. And you never see a grape, you never walk by a vineyard and see grapes hanging there on the vine, struggling really hard to be grapes. That would be odd. No, all a grape has to do to be a grape is to hang out in the vine just hangs around the vine, and it receives from the vine its nourishment, its growth. It just hangs out. Jesus is like, how do you become more godly? Hang out with God and allow him to rub off. Trust me, you're not going to rub off on Jesus. He'll rub off on you. So it's not about work. It's not about sacrifice. It's not about fast. It's about hanging out with me, abiding in me, enjoying me. It's grace and grace alone. And yet we see illustrated by the motiva motivations 
uh, behind their fast of the Pharisees and the disciples of John, that there are two other distortions that easily seep in. Grace sounds too good to be true. It really does. Let's be honest. Like, where's the catch? And if you begin to ask yourself that question, it's too good to be true, you are beginning to understand what grace really is. Because it is, my friend, too good to be true, but it's true nonetheless. God's grace, his amazing grace, how sweet that sound. It saved a wretch like me. Those that were lost that are found. If you're lost, you can't do anything to be found. There has to be an intervention, a Savior. So we are saved by grace and grace alone. Our response is motivated and fueled by grace and grace alone. And yet subtly religion will seep in. And it'll say grace is great. But it's really, if we're, it's grace and do these things. It's grace and fast. Or grace and tithe. Or grace and go witness. Or grace and you fill in the blank. It's grace and, well, here are these other things that you should be doing. No, 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 no. If you ever hear someone say, grace and do these things, that is not the true gospel of grace. Because it's grace and grace alone. The Pharisees, they were earning God's favor by something that they were doing. And then in contrast, but still related, the disciples of, of John were attempting to earn God's favor by refraining from eating. If you have the grace and do these things perversion, the disciples of John adhere to the, the grace, but don't do these things. Yes, you're saved by grace, but you shouldn't do these things. And again, it's easy to fall into that trap and say, well, that makes sense. But no, it's not about me doing anything or refraining from doing anything. It's, it begins and it ends with what he's done and allowing that to play forth in my life. Well, it's, it's grace, but don't you dare watch R-rated movies. Well, where's that in the Bible? Now, there, there's obviously some probably practical benefit from not watching R-rated movies. I'm not standing here advocating for that. But the idea is that you're not like developing a greater standing as a result, nor are you becoming more righteous as a consequence. Again, your righteousness didn't begin, nor does it end, nor does it develop by what you do, but by what he's done, and you abiding within that. So they come, and they're like, fasting, what's the deal? And Jesus is like, eh, fast, mass. No need. And, and he makes this interesting statement in the middle of it. He says, the days will come, though, when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, from a very practical standpoint, this is the first mention um, or indication given by Jesus of, of, of what was on the horizon, his impending departure. Now, I have heard some try to use that one verse to say that, uh, that we're to fast now, but, but he has not been taken away from us. <laughs> now, he was for three days, and it was during those three days that the disciples of Jesus likely fasted. They abstained. But it was a very temporary thing. And then it was on the new day. And what, what, what was instructed when the disciples of Jesus gathered? They were to pray. They were to do some things. But what were they also to do? Eat. Eat together. Break bread together. Fellowship together. Enjoy life together. But Jesus came was something new. He wasn't trying to take Judaism, repackage it. He came to fulfill it and start something fresh. We continue, verse 18. And while he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. 
this ruler, a ruler Cain, in um, some of the other gospel accounts, we're told that this was the ruler of the synagogue. Again, we're in Capernaum. The synagogue was the, the gathering place um, by which the Jews would, would congregate on the Sabbath um, and worship God, uh, their holy day. We think of it in, in a modern context like a church. The synagogue, the ruler of the synagogue was basically just an elder, a, a man of, of some stature, notoriety, uh, integrity, character within the community that was just charged with the care of, of the building and kind of the organization of, of the procedures associated uh, with the service related to the Sabbath. The ruler of the synagogue, it would be his job to make sure the grounds were taken care of, to make sure that the AC got turned on the night before. Uh, the ruler of the synagogue made sure the building was clean, straightened up, orderly, make sure that the volunteers were there to make coffee ahead of time. Uh, the ushers were, were, were on board, on duty. He just facilitated. It was also his job that if a rabbi was in town uh, to go out, invite the rabbi to come and speak. Uh, he would oversee the, the particular orders of the service. He would recruit different people to be involved at different places, to do different readings whenever it would arise. But this was a, a man of standing, the ruler of the synagogue. We can conclude uh, that he was very familiar already with Jesus. Jesus has already taught in the synagogue there in Capernaum. It's his headquarters, his hometown. It's likely he was kind of the resident rabbi, speaking every weekend. This man was very familiar with the ministry of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the healing ministry, and those aspects of Jesus' ministry. We're also given his name. Now, I like to call him Jairus. Sometimes you'll find it Jairus. Um, I'm not Greek, so if I'm mispronouncing his name, he can correct me in heaven. Jairus, kind of the southern way to say Jairus. Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, had a daughter. We know the daughter was 12 years old by this point. She had become great, gravely sick to the point that she had passed away. And this man, in desperation, comes to Jesus with a, da a daughter who's just died. Imagine the grief this man's experiencing, the weight to have a, a child die. You know, death, it's, it's a terrible thing. When people die in, in old age, again, it doesn't, it doesn't soften the blow. But there's a bit of rationalization. They lived a good life, you know. Surrounded by friends and family. It was their time. They had finished their race. But man, when, when youth is cut down, this little girl had not started a family yet, had not gotten married. She's in her father's home, no doubt the apple of his eye. He loves her deeply. And she's passed away. It's interesting, why, why didn't he, he come to Jesus before this? Could it have been his, a, a religious fear, an embarrassment? Could it have this death, the illness causing death, come on too quick? He didn't want to leave her side. Maybe he was holding out hope that the doctors had a remedy. Regardless, what he loved and what he cherished has been taken from him. And he does something really odd. His daughter is dead. And he comes to Jesus. And he appeals that Jesus comes to his home. Lay his hand upon her. So that she'll live. Again. <clears throat> Jesus has performed some pretty radical miracles by this point. For the first time in, in, in Israel, lepers have been healed. The blind is seeing. A paralyzed man is walking. Demon-possessed individuals have been liberated. I mean, Jesus has, has definitely demonstrated a certain measure of power and authority 
but he has not raised someone from the dead. I mean, that's kind of on a whole new plane. That's taking things to an another level. This man, for whatever reason, he hadn't come to Jesus. His daughter dies, and he comes with a request that's crazy. Come and raise my daughter from the dead. And there is incredible faith in his request. I mean, there's a certainty in the way that it's presented. My daughter's died. You come, lay your hand on her, she'll live. There's no doubting. There's no questioning. I mean, there's, there's orders. There's directives. You come, you lay your hands, she'll live. I know this is what will happen. So Jesus arose, followed him, along with his disciples. Now, you gotta have to get the scene in your mind. We're in Capernaum, this fishing village, roughly populated around 17,000, give or take, right there on the Sea of Galilee. In ancient cities, city planning, not exactly a high priority. People are living on top of other people. Houses built. Um, without firewalls, you know, tacking on to the other houses. E even today, if you go to the old city of Jerusalem, the streets are, are very narrow. It's hard to navigate. It's hard to move quickly. Th there is an entourage following Jesus. There's a posse of people. The disciples, just plural. And so Jesus arises, and he's going to go to Jairus' house. And, and as you play the scene out, uh, this is slow going. People are packed from shoulder to shoulder, from curb to curb. There's this processional making its way through this ancient little, little village on the way to this man's house. People are bumping into each other, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an organized mosh pit. And suddenly, verse 20, a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. This woman, the scene kind of shifts to another interesting character. Again, Jesus, he's been invited to do something really radical. He's going to go and, and raise this man's daughter. The man's already demonstrated a measure of faith. Jesus has responded to that. He's on his way. Unbeknownst to everyone else within the crowd, there is a woman. And Matthew has told us that she's had this, this flow of blood for 12 years. Luke gives us more details about her particular elements. You can go to his gospel and, and read a, a greater accounting of it. But you need to understand that this flow of blood was devastating for her. For 12 years, it had likely started innocent enough. Maybe it had just been the, the beginning of her normal monthly cycle. Maybe it had been um, a, a bleed as a result of childbearing. We're not given the original cause. But according to the law, as long as there was a flow of blood, this woman was ceremonially unclean. And that had implications. First and foremost, she was not allowed in any regard to go to the temple. Everything she touched would be considered defiled. She wouldn't have any relations or interactions with her family, her husband, her children, if she had them. Her life had, for the most part, kind of ended. According to Jewish writings dating back to this day, such a flow of blood would have given just cause for divorce. Her husband at some point, again, without there being normal relations, without there being any type of a family dynamic, he would have had every right, and it would have been understood for him to have, have asked for a certificate of divorce. We're told in another account that the woman was a woman of some means, and she was in such a desperate situation that she had spent all of her resources trying to find doctors that could, that could come up with a remedy. The law declared her unclean, separated her, and the best medical minds of the day had no remedy. 
she's desperate. Again, we don't know what her first interaction with Jesus may have been. It's clear that she recognizes that there's something special about Jesus, that there's power within Jesus, even to the point that she believes in her heart that she doesn't need Jesus to say anything or even to acknowledge her presence. She doesn't have to even bring a request. She comes with a bit of superstition, honestly, that all she has to do to be healed is to touch the hem of his garment. All she has to do is come up from behind without anyone aware, and if she could just touch the hem of his garment, she would be healed. Imagine this woman, 12 years. The desperation. But she makes her way through the crowd. She reaches and she touches the hem of his garment. Verse 22. But Jesus turned around. And when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. Now, <clears throat> Jesus' response, as recorded by Matthew, is a little incomplete. I think it's the Gospel of Mark, adds a, li a little bit of the hilarity to the situation. This woman comes up, touches the hem of his garment. Jesus stops. You know, again, they're on their way. He stops, and he turns around, and he says, Who touched me? To which the disciples are like, are you, what? That's an odd question, because everyone's touching you. Again, crowded, narrow street, lots of people bumping into Jesus. And yet Jesus understands that, that while a lot of people were touching him, someone touched him, that something else happened. And we're, and we're told here by Matthew that Jesus identifies the woman. I think it was pretty obvious. I think the moment she touched the hem of his garment, that she knew what had happened, that she could feel a change. She's probably weeping. She's overwhelmed. The crowd stops, and she's like, uh-oh, I've been caught. There's no way for her to run, nowhere for her to get out. Jesus sees her. And I love what he says. First, he says, be of good cheer. She's probably horrified. And Jesus immediately addresses her fear. It's okay. And then he uses a very fascinating term. He says, daughter. This is the only time in Jesus' ministry that he uses this particular word. It's the only occasion that he uses the word daughter. Now, obviously, the woman is not his daughter. Not his biological daughter. And yet Jesus, he's doing something I think fascinating. First, from a very practical standpoint, he's articulating the love of the Father. My daughter. The tenderness. Be of good cheer, daughter. I love you. Now don't forget the, 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 the flow of blood alienated her from all religion. She was separated from God, and yet God spoke through the void and said, my daughter. Oh, I still love you. I still care for you, daughter. Now, who's standing there? Jairus. Who, whose daughter of 12 years has just died? Daughter. In a lot of ways, I think Jesus, he's articulating to Jairus, a measure of compassion and understanding. I too know what it's like to have a daughter, Jarius. I understand the love, the compassion. And he says, your faith has made you well. You know, when we come across lines like that, your faith has made you well, sometimes it can reek of a little bit of Christian platitude. We read through that, and it's easy to kind of skirt, skirt right along. Your faith has made you well. Well, you need to have faith. 
Your faith, faith, faith. What does that mean? Like, what does it mean? Your faith has made you well. Let's talk about her faith. Because was it great? Really, no, it wasn't, to be honest. She doesn't come to Jesus face to face, does she? No, she's trying to like interact with Jesus incognito in a stealth mode. I'm just going to come up from behind, touch your garment. I'll be healed. You won't know. I'm not embarrassed. No public profession. And not only that, is her faith rooted in any type of, of reality? No, it's pure superstition on her part to touch the hem of the garment. At, at what point has that ever happened in Jesus' ministry? Like, where does she, where does she get the, the basis for that conclusion? It's her own superstition. You see, it wasn't the substance of her faith, the, the power of her faith. It wasn't, kind of go with me here, it really wasn't her faith, per se. The key was the object of this really distorted, kind of whacked out faith. Because everything was kind of wrong about it, except for one thing, Jesus. Like she comes the wrong way, with the wrong conclusions, on the wrong basis, but she came to the right person. She came to Jesus. See, it wasn't her faith, so to speak, it was where her faith was placed, she saw Jesus. And she believed that Jesus could and would heal her, would make her whole. So when Jesus came into the ruler's house, verse 23, and he saw the flute players. The fl Every time I read that, this is, I always think of Ron Burgundy. <laughs> the, fruit, the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing. And this was just the customary grieving crew. Keep in mind, when someone died in that, that day and age, they were buried the same day. Um, they were, the stone was rolled away from the sarcophagus. Um, their, their, their body was laid uh, there in the tomb. Um, it was shrouded. Um, the stone was, was, was rolled back. Decomp would happen rapidly. Middle East, hot temperature, humid. Uh, you stinketh quickly. Few months would pass, they'd roll the stone back, collect the bones, put them in a side shelf, and they would use the, the tomb over and over and over again. Entire families, generations were buried in the sarcophagus, this, the same tomb. This 12-year-old is going to be buried the same day that she dies, and thus everything happens quickly. There's no time for out-of-towners to come in. Flute players, professional whalers, no doubt neighbors, there's a posse here, a crew, mourning. So he, Jesus, he comes to the house, he sees this crowd wailing, and he says to them, make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the little girl arose. And the report of this went out into all of the land. I'm sure it did. They ridiculed him. This statement made by Jesus, the girl is not dead but sleeping. It's an, it's an interesting phrase. Don't misunderstand. The girl is dead. This was not a misdiagnosis. Uh, she wasn't asleep. She wasn't in a coma. Uh, they were very good at knowing when someone was dead. There's no mistaking. She's dead. Jesus' phrase is speaking to something, something else. The, the greater idea that death is not the end. Like, like he's saying, she might be dead, but she's not dead in that sense. You know, we, we have that same belief as Christians, don't we? Like, when you die, you're not dead. You're very much alive. And in the sense that, that at some point there will be a physical resurrection, our way of trying to articulate 
what's happened now to your physical body is, well, we, we would say that, that you're sleeping. Interesting, I didn't know this. The word cemetery um, and its original uh, development means sleeping place. Uh, developed by early Protestants, early Christians. In the cemetery, people were buried facing east. Uh, why? Because they were sleeping, and the belief was that Jesus, when he would return from the east to the west, upon the resurrection, that you would want the first thing you saw to be Jesus when you rose from your grave. Sleeping. Yes, dead physically, but still alive. They ridiculed him. They didn't understand. Jesus puts the crowd out. In another place, he, he does this violently. He drop kicks some flute players. And he goes in. We're told that he takes with him Jarius, the wife, Peter, James, and John. So of the 12, what we would call apostles, there was the inner working of three that are able to see unique things. <clears throat> Peter, James, and John. Jesus takes her by the hand. And again, Matthew just says that, that, that the girl arose, but, but Jesus said, according to, to, to Mark, little girl, arise. He spoke to her, and she arose. What a bummer for the little girl. Let's, let's, let's be real. She has tasted glory. She has seen heaven. And now she has to come back to this place. Now, and not only that, but then she'll have to die again. <laughs> you know, one of the, you know, Jesus raises you from the dead. It's like, thanks, Jesus. I get to die again. You know, Lazarus, four days, but guess what? Still had to die. In fact, we wouldn't even call this resurrection in, a, in its classical sense. It would be revivification. She was revived. She was dead, but she was revived to die again. Jesus, the first of the resurrection, because he rose from the dead to never die again. One day, my friend, you will be resurrected to never die again. She rose. And this report went into all the land what this must have, must have meant for Jairus. That Jesus did what was improbable. What, that Jesus did what would have been concluded impossible. You know, a simple application, and we're running out of time this morning, is that there might be a part of your life or something you're going through, something that might even be dead, and you're like, you know, I should have brought this to Jesus earlier, but I didn't. And now it's dead. In fact, there's no logical reason for me to believe that, that Jesus could do anything about this. It's dead. I should have come. I didn't. In, in way of application, this man still came. Jesus had never done this before. But he believed. And then his faith was reaffirmed through Jesus' action with, with, this, with this woman with the flow of blood and calling her daughter, and his heart was stirred in faith. And Jesus did the impossible and the improbable. And he can do the same thing in you. Well, Zach, you don't, you don't know what, what it is. I don't. You're right. But he does. He can speak life into death. He can speak through the void of darkness and call for something that isn't there. He's Jesus. And he didn't come to do what's always been done. He came to do something brand new. And the other application that you can't help but, but point out is that there are so many people who hang out with the people, with the disciples of Jesus, who even bump into Jesus, but never touch Jesus. 
there were so many people in that little crowded streetway, that alleyway, bumping into Jesus, so many people around Jesus, there was one woman who touched him truly. And you know, there are, and I think it's, it's applicable to our particular kind of Southern Christian culture. There are a lot of people that are really good. They, in fact, they even understand the need to hang around Jesus. They come to church as much as they can. They definitely make it on Easter, Christmas Eve. I mean, if you miss those, you're going straight to hell. I get to church as much as I can. I listen to the Christian radio when I can. I read my Bible when I can. I'm a Christian because I go to church. And my parents were Christians. My great-granddaddy was a Christian. And my great-great-granddaddy was a Christian. We're Christians. There are a lot of people in our society that hang around Jesus that hang around the people following Jesus and will walk through this life never touching Jesus and never experiencing the power of Jesus and never making a personal connection with Jesus. Whether you call them cultural Christians or whatever term you come up with. You know the person. I mean, it's none of you, but you know the person, right? I encourage you, don't be mistaken. You, coming to church no more makes you a Christian than sleeping in a garage makes you a car. It's a personal relationship with Jesus. It's not your work. It's not the things you sacrifice. It's not the things you abstain from. It's touching Jesus. It's connecting with Jesus. It's knowing Jesus. It's hearing him say, daughter, be of good cheer. Or son, be of good cheer. Jesus, what a cool guy, right? So Father, Lord, we...